I'm uh, really glad you're here today. We are starting this new thing, the meet and greet. Uh, first and third Sunday is going to be able to meet people. So if you're visiting with us, go to our response room. We'd love to meet you there. But also, by the way, for Kingsway people, that means after the services on those Sundays, I really won't be standing down front, which is probably good today because in case you can't tell, I've been sick all week. And so my voice is rocked, and uh, I'm going to do my best to just preach for Jesus, and uh, hopefully it'll hold up. So we're back in Revelation. And if you're visiting or new with us, started coming the last few weeks, listening online, you need to go back. Back, probably, and listen to that series we finished uh, on the seven churches because I'm going to give you the quick highlight, but there's going to be things I say in this service that um, you'll understand better if you listen to that. Again, my goal is CSI not lost. And here's what I mean, is in CSI, you know, every episode you can watch the episode and not really know the backstory of the characters and not miss anything. They kind of bring you up to speed, but if you're following the backstory, you get more out of the show. And Lost, if you ever miss an episode, you were lost. So I don't want that to be the case. What I want to do right now is try to give you, remember if you ever watched Lost, remember that previously on Lost. That's what I want to do right now. I want to give you the introduction or reintroduction real quick to this book called Revelation. And we're titling our series The End. And today is called The End of Me. And we're going to see that in just a moment. So the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John. It was written, people believe, in one of two time frames. Either in the 60s AD or in the 90s AD. I land in the 90s AD camp, so that's the perspective I'm coming from. If you have an Android or an Apple-based phone, you could download our app even right now. You can get on the Wi-Fi or on your uh, cell network. You can download the app. My outline is in there. Things that I am saying to you are in the outline, but they're not on a screen for you to look at. So be easier to follow along. In the 60s, Nero was emperor of Rome. In the 90s, a guy named Domitian was emperor. And Domitian and Nero were both bad dudes, hated Christians. Domitian, even more so than Nero, did horrible, horrible, unspeakable things. Also, there was something called Caesar worship or emperor worship, and that is uh, where they literally um, elevated the Caesar, in this case Domitian, as God and king. That's what they called him, my Lord God and God the king. So you can see there's a problem there for Christians who worship Jesus as God and king. Because the persecution was so great for the, for the people that John is writing this letter to, John is writing the book of Revelation, and if for nothing else, to help them see the real God and the real king is really seated on the throne, and even though life is totally out of control, you could trust him. So with that, let's open up Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant, John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. (laughs) Ha ha, I'm blessed. And... He blesses all who listen. You have the opportunity to be blessed too. To its message and obey what it says. For the time is near. Notice all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1. This is a what? Revelation. And then it comes up down here again. 
The word revelation in Greek, I got this put on the screen, is actually the word apocalypsis. Sound like any word you've ever heard before. Apocalypse. It's where we get our word apocalypse. It comes right from there. It's that word revelation. Little small tidbit drives many scholars crazy. There's not revelations. There's one revelation from Jesus to John. So don't say, oh, we're studying the book of revelations. There's only one revelation. Singular. Okay, moving on. All right. And it's apocalypsis. It really means the unveiling or the hidden thing. There's a reason for that. So apocalypsis is a type of apocalyptic literature, a type of what we call a genre. If you don't know what a genre is, um, I don't either. But when I looked it up, <clears throat> a genre is a grouping or a style of writing. One modern day example of maybe a, 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 a genre today would be science fiction. So if you were to go, say, three, four hundred years ago, you wouldn't find science fiction writing. You may not, 500 years from now, I don't know. But if you look especially at this span of the last 80 years with Star Treks and Star Wars, amen, in December of Jesus Doesn't Return, if you look at these things, yeah, preach it, just kidding, you'll find a genre called science fiction. Well, in that day, they had a genre called apocalyptic literature. And you can find it in the Old Testament, parts of Daniel and Isaiah and other places. You can also find it in extra-biblical, outside-biblical writings. And there's a style to it. And it's highly, highly, highly figurative, metaphoric, lots of analogies. And those pictures are pointing us to something. Now, excuse me, <coughs> because Revelation is written in this metaphoric, highly figurative style, when we read Revelation, we have to watch for what do these things mean. And now, I just want to tell you real quick, when we approach the book of Revelation, we must approach it with mercy. We must approach it with grace. There are godly men and godly women who don't agree on the book of Revelation. They study it for all their lives, and they just landed in different camps, and guess what? That's okay, because the whole point is Jesus is going to return. You don't have to agree with me. You don't have to leave the church if you don't agree with me. We're here to just talk to the book. We're going to look at some of the things, but this is one of those principles that affects how you interpret the book. So there's a figurative interpretation, there's a literal interpretation. When you look at it literally, then you're literally trying to figure out what all these things are. When you read Revelation, though, there's so many figures, and sometimes they're told what they are. So there's seven lampstands, and we're told they're the seven churches. It's a figure. Was there literally a lampstand there? Yeah, of course, but it pointed to something else. So the book is very figurative, and there are times when those figures help you understand a little bit about what's going on. I take that approach because of this genre called apocalyptic literature. Now, it's really hard for us to wrap our heads around this. So what I would like for you to do is to imagine, I don't know if any of you, how many of you were alive and old enough to watch the news, say, around the year 2000? Okay. No, I'm not talking about the whole computer clock thing. However... Let's say it's the year 2000, give or take, 2002, 1999, somewhere in there, and you were to hear this. Don't put it on the screen. Don't put it on the screen. So don't look at your app. Don't cheat. Okay. But you were to hear this. Tell me what we're talking about. The bull, which once ruled the earth, has had a mighty fall. The great right horn, whose number was 20 and 3, let the reader understand, has departed. And the left horn, likewise, is gone, as is the third horn, which was pierced in many places and dressed like a woman. 
And the hornets and the timber wolves and all the beasts of the field have gathered to devour the flesh of the bull. What are we talking about? Right. All right, let me put it up here. I'll read this to you again. Go ahead and look at this. So imagine it's year 2000, and you're reading the newspaper, and somebody were to write this. And um, especially if you lived in, say, Chicagoland, you would look at this and go, oh, this is clearly about the Chicago Bull. So the bull, which once ruled the earth, has had a mighty fall. The great right horn, whose number was 20 and 3, get it? Let the leader understand, has departed, and the left horn, Scotty Pippen is also gone. And the third horn, my favorite, <laughs> which was pierced in many places, addressed like a woman. <laughs> Who's that? And the hornets and the timberwolves and all the beasts of the field have gathered to devour the flesh of the bull. John Orberg wrote that. I think it's genius. I love John Orberg. Okay. Here's the point of that, besides getting a good laugh. Here's, a good, here's the point of all that. <clears throat> Revelation is written in figurative language. Here's why. Domitian is such a bad dude. And he is persecuted, killing, arresting, putting in prison Christians. And Jesus is bringing a message to John. John sees something, and he's got to communicate it, but he can't just say it. Number one, everything that he was sending out, he's on the island of Patmos, could be taken and read, which could be bad for him or bad for those who are delivering the message for him because he's in exile on the island. So he has to write it in such a way that when the Romans and the Jews read it, it's goggly goop. I don't even know if that's a word, but they don't know what it means. Like, this is weird, whatever, give it to them. Those Christians are weirdos anyway. But when the church reads it, they go, oh, we know exactly what he's talking about. And so we put ourselves in their day and in their shoes, and all of a sudden we can understand a lot of these things. And my goal, my hope, information doesn't change anybody's life. My goal, my hope, is to give you information that will lead you to trusting in the one that we will see today is seated on the throne. So... Let's take a look now. Jump with me to Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. <coughs> and try not to picture the one who is pierced in many places. Here we go. This letter is from John to seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. From the sevenfold spirit before his throne. And from Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness to these things the first to rise from the dead, and the ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. You ever wonder if God loves you? The proof is in the blood. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. This may be Basically, John's summary of the entire book. Here in this place, we see really important theological topics. Number one, we see God the Father. He's the one seated on the throne. But we see Jesus Christ, the faithful one, the one who was first born among us, the one who has saved us by shedding his own blood. And we see the sevenfold spirit of God there also. That would be referred to the Holy Spirit. The seven, as we'll get to in just a minute, no, we'll get there yet. Seven means completion. This is important because anybody who argues that the concept of the Trinity was made up by the church, it's not in the Bible, has never read the book of Revelation as well as many other passages. It's right there for you to see. They're all together. And they're writing a letter to these seven churches. As I told you in our last series, seven churches are seven literal churches in ancient Asia Minor, which today would be Turkey, Middle East. 
And um, those seven churches represent every church that's ever existed from then until Jesus returns. And so there's a message for the seven churches coming from God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just do a little bit of teaching real quick um, on the number seven. The number seven throughout the Bible stands for completion. I got this one up here. These are just a few examples. I mean, I literally could go on for a half hour about various examples. But, for instance, there are seven days in a week, according to Genesis 1. Why not eight? Why not six? Because it's the complete number. God determined that. Also, there's something called the year of Jubilee. So the Israelites were supposed to work the land for seven years and give it a break. Every seven sets of seven, they're supposed to take the entire year off and all the debts are freed. We find that Leviticus 25, seven sets of seven. Matthew 18, Jesus starts teaching on forgiveness and um, he says, you need to forgive each other and uh, to the degree to which you forgive other people, God will forgive you and there's a great conversation and Peter's like, God, how do I do that? Help us do that. How many times should I forgive somebody? Like seven times? Jesus says, no, not seven. Seventy times seven. In other words, forgive completely. And the number seven, you will see come up over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. Sometimes it comes up in black and white, like the seven churches. Sometimes it's more like a metaphor, the sevenfold spirit of God. It still means complete, but in other times, you'll see it in lists of things. And it's fascinating when you understand that. For instance, there are places where there are seven things being described, like seven bowls, seven trumpets, seven seals. Are you with me? And these stand for the complete, the complete judgment of God. The complete suffering on the earth. In other words, there's no more than this. So when you see the number seven, it stands for complete. But you don't, if you don't know this, you can actually get to seven in a combination of ways, like four plus three. Ooh, math. See, I don't just teach a Bible. Man, this is like full of knowledge for you. Four and three also have representation in the book. The number four points to, I would say, creation, but more, usually more than anything, it points to the earth points to man. It points to things from here, things that God has created. And three points us to God. Why? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So now let me just show this to you, and then we'll dig into our text for the day. Let's look at God. God is represented by a trinity. Take a look at this. <coughs> Excuse me. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Holy, holy, holy. Three times. As the Lord God Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and still to come. One, two, three. One, two, three. Pretty cool, huh? Now, in this case, um, they didn't really have a word for the, like most. We might say, I'm, the, I'm the, the most bestest player ever, which would be really bad grammar, but you would get the idea. They didn't really have those kinds of language. So part of the way they would illustrate something is they would repeat it not once, but three times. It's a perfect perfection. It's a completion. There is nobody holy like God. Nobody, nothing. He's the only one who was and is still to come and is. And this is important. If you're writing a letter to a group of people facing intense persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ, some are quitting on their faith, either through their immorality or through literally giving up. And you want to encourage them, do not quit. What do you tell them? Look at the one who's seated on the throne. There's no one like him. Where are you going to go find somebody as holy as him? Where are you going to go and find somebody who's always been around long before your pain existed, long after your pain is gone, and here in this moment while you're suffering is the one on the throne? Here's another one, uh, Revelation 4.11. You are worthy, <clears throat> O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. Again, it's just a set of three that points us back to God. 
Also, worship is represented in heaven by a set of seven sometimes. Why? Because it's the complete worship. Here's a passage, Revelation chapter 5, verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Seven. Why? Because they are worshiping Him completely. They are holding nothing back from Him. See how these little cool things kind of give you keys to unlock the hidden meaning? All right, here's another one. Man, as I told you, is represented by a sequence of four. And here we go. <coughs> Revelation 5, 13. And then I heard every creature, and I, I didn't underline this one, I messed up, but I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. How many? Four, the creation. And then what did they sing? Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the reason I tell you these things is, guys, are just little keys. As you're reading the book of Revelation, they help you look at what's going on. Nothing in the book of Revelation is happening on accident. Don, John didn't just sit around and go, hey, I wonder what the best four words I could write here are. No, I'm picking four for a reason. I don't just write until I'm done. No, I'm picking this for a purpose. There's a reason behind all these things. So without any further ado, what I want to do is just stop and pray. And then I want to jump into Revelation 4 and 5. And um, let's just see what God has for us today. Oh, God. Lord, uh, you are the only one worthy of our praise. God, you are the only one that um, we ascribe worship to. God, I pray right now um, for those visiting with us today who've never placed their hope and their trust in you. I pray today would be a pivotal moment. God, I pray today they would see that you are good and faithful and powerful and scary and having you on their side is everything they need. God, I pray for the believer in this room whose faith is struggling. Would you encourage them, build them up through the presentation of Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit. God, I pray for our hearts. God, help us to surrender completely to you, to cast down our golden crowns around the glassy sea. We love you and we praise you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Then as I looked, I saw doors standing open in heaven, and the voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. In other words, it's loud, really loud. And the voice said, come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the Spirit, and I saw a throne in heaven, and someone sitting on it. And the one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian, and the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. For the, from the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder, and in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold Spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. And in the center and around the, th and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. 
And each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out. And day after day and night after night, they keep on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Now, let's come back and talk about what in the world we just saw. And there'll be parts of this, just so you know. On uh, <coughs> October 18th, Dr. Johnny Presley's coming to teach us. One of my Bible college professors, great guy, spoke it here before. He'll speak that morning and that night. He's going to do like a little symposium, hour-long teaching on this text. He'll dig in deeper than I have time to go here. I'm going to keep a high level. I'll give you some things. He'll be able to have time to go deeper. Um, there's just some fascinating stuff happening in this text. The next week, Dr. Mark Moore will come out and he'll speak too. And uh, I'm just excited for both of them to come and let my voice rest. Here we go. Revelation, come back with me. Chapter uh, 1, look at verse 2. John is now up in heaven, he's in the spirit, and he's standing, and he sees a throne in heaven. This is important, because if you remember, back in the seven churches, there's a constant throne in these communities where the seven churches are, and the thrones sitting on them are nothing. These false gods that the Romans worship, like Zeus and Asclepios, and all of these other false gods, and over and over and over again, we hear Jesus letting the people know, don't worship the one sitting on those false man-made thrones. They're worthless. They have no power. They're made by human hands. Instead, and what John's trying to get to here is, worship the one seated on the heavenly throne who made the earthly throne. So, keep reading. Verse 3. And the one sitting on the throne, by the way, the word throne is brought up, uh, trying to remember now, I think it's, ah, that's the wrong one, I think it was 62 times in the, in, the, in the New Testament, I think 47 of them are in the book of Revelation. Don't go around quoting me on those numbers, because if you're wrong, we'll both look like idiots. But it's somewhere in that number. The whole idea is, the word throne is an important word. It's used a lot in Revelation, a lot. Why? Because if you don't understand who's seated on the heavenly throne, then you'll be tempted to think that the one who sit on the earthly thrones have the power. Your presidents, your senators, your kings, your CEOs, you're rich and you're wealthy. If you don't understand the one who's really on the throne, then you'll ascribe worship and trust and hope where it doesn't belong. So John wants to make this crystal clear. And what's going on? He looks brilliant. He just describes his two beautiful gemstones in his day, just a bit breathtaking. And he's, he looks like this, and there's like this rainbow. Now there's two things possibly going on with this rainbow. In the rainbow metaphor, it could just be that he was so beautiful, there's this light emanating from him that is just like a glow all around him. You know how this goes, right? You ever talk to somebody, and they're standing in front of a window, and the sun is behind him, and they literally glow. It's that kind of thing. But if he's talking about something else, you may know that there's a rainbow that pops up in the Old Testament, right? Genesis. God floods the earth as he's judging the earth. And at the end of the flood, God sends a rainbow. And the rainbow is supposed to represent the presence of God, the promise of God, the protection of God. I will never flood the earth again. You can trust me. It doesn't mean I won't judge the earth again, but I will never do it in this way. So he gave us a rainbow to portray that we could trust him. It's important for what you're about to see. Hang on to that. I like that one. Hang on to that. Verse 4. There are 24 th thrones surrounded him and 24 elders on them. They're all clothed in white. White represents purity throughout the book of Revelation. Over and over, throughout the Bible, really, but throughout the book of Revelation, we see these white. And this is so fascinating. Just hang on to this. 
when Paul tells us and we get baptized, we go into the waters of baptism, we come out, we take off our old clothes, the clothes of the flesh, and we put on the clothing of Christ. Literally, Paul says we are clothed with Christ. But now we see in heaven, these people are standing there and they're wearing white. Why? Because God has clothed them in purity and they're wearing gold crowns on their heads. There's a statement being made there about these beings. Who are the 24 elders? That's one of the things Johnny Presley will dig into. Scholars land into different places. There's no way for us to know with certainty. The two most popular, the two most popular themes that, uh, and I think both of them have some value to them, but either this is a representation of the 12 tribes of Israel plus the 12 apostles, or, and this is kind of where I land, or this is, this is like the 24 leading angels in heaven. God has a courtroom in heaven. They're a, the most powerful beings, and they stand in his presence. Now, don't misunderstand. God's not standing around with the angels going, hey, what do you guys think? You think we ought to do this? I'm not sure. You know, when Jesus teaches us how to pray, remember, he says, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is. God surrounds himself with these extremely powerful beings, and when he says, you go do this, they go. In fact, we actually see the Bible, Jesus, or God on the throne will actually say, I need someone to go. Who's going to go? And angels go, oh, 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 send me. Let me go. It's not like he's saying, hey, do you think we should go? It's like, hey, let me go and do this for you, God, because it's an honor for me to serve you. I believe that's the one that makes more sense. And one of the reasons I do is because if it's the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles, that means John's standing there seeing himself standing there which is a little weird to me. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm okay if I'm wrong. I don't care. We're in heaven. Okay. They're all clothed in white. They all got gold on their heads. Now, from the throne comes booming thunder and lightning. There are very few moments in life more terrifying than a massive storm, are there? When you're really in a storm, I'll never forget this one time I was golfing and being a young, dumb, 20-year-old guy and in Colorado, we could see the storm coming because out there a lot of times you could see it. We kept thinking, ah, maybe it'll go north or south or maybe we got time to finish this. You keep playing. And then you get out to the middle of the golf course and you can't get in and it comes and it is big and it is loud and it is intimidating. And now you're standing in like this little pavilion and it's open on all the sides and you're thinking, if this turns into a tornado or lightning, I'm dead and there's no hope. That's what big storms do. And now God is seen in his throne room with its massive power emanating from his throne and it is all encompassing and it is intimidating and it is booming and there is lightning and John is trying to get you to wrap your head around. He is all powerful. I mean, in his presence, it is terrifying that all of heaven is surrounding him to worship him. But I don't want you to miss this. Take a look at this. Look at verse six. And in front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass sparkling like crystal. Have you ever been on a lake or the ocean, when there's a massive storm, what are the waves doing? But not here. Massive storm, thunder, lightning, glass. What is John trying to say here? Well, to really get it, you've got to go even deeper into the Hebrew culture and the Greek culture. Many, many, many writers in that day will tell you that um, the sea is an uncontrollable place. Nobody can control it and nobody can predict it. Jesus surrounded himself with a bunch of men and some of them were fishermen. And one day Jesus is out on a boat with his fishermen buddies and Jesus is so tired he just falls asleep out in the boat. 
But his guys, the experts, they get terrified because this big storm comes up. You remember this? And the waves are splashing all over the place. And they freak out and they go to Jesus, we're going to die. And you think to yourself, if you're reading it, you're like, you guys are experts on the water. Like, how did you not see the signs that this was coming? Well, part of it is the Sea of Galilee sits in like a bowl. So literally the wind comes up over and it just out of nowhere, it just comes and you can't predict it. And when it happens, you're out of control and it will kill you. And many people died. So the sea is a terrifying place. And people in that day just believe no one can control the sea, which is why when Jesus stands up in that story and he goes to the edge of the boat and he says, be still, and the sea calms down, the disciples go, who in the world is this guy? that he calms the winds and the waves by just a word from his mouth. And now in heaven, booming thunder, flashing lightning. But this is calm. John is trying to help the seven churches and you today know no matter what storm is raging in your life, the one seated on the throne in his presence, it's all calm. You're okay. It may not feel like you're okay. It may not look like you're okay. It may look like everything is falling apart and God must have lost control because look at this and this and this and this and this. And John wants us to know unequivocally, it's okay. He's still seated on the throne. Everything that happens from here on out, the rest of the book is going to look ugly. He's still seated. On, he's not pacing. He's seated. When you're stressed out, what are you doing? You're pacing. He's seated on the throne. They're having a worship service. It's chaotic. It's okay. Everything's at peace. Then there are four living beings with eyes up front and back. I don't have time to go too deep into these because I want to make some other points, but let's look at verse 7 real quick. <coughs> verse 7. One after six. All right, I'll go with the screen. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second, like an ox. There we go. Third, had a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Now, in almost every culture in the history of the world, these four living beings, these four things, represent the king of that subtype. So eagle is the king of the birds. The lion, the king of the, the animals of the field. The ox the king of the domesticated animals. He's the strongest. And then there's the man. So again, I don't land where some land that there's literally going to be these four nations and they're going to be represented by an eagle. So this one must be the U.S. and that must be Russia or whatever, whatever. Guys, it makes more sense to me what John is saying is, again, four, there's four of them. They're represented here in heaven. What John's trying to say is all of creation bows down to this king because one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He is the only one worthy, which is why they go on and sing to him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and is still to come. Verse 9, now, whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, and they lay their crowns before the throne, and they say, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. There's two things, one in Revelation 4, one in Revelation 5, I want you to get. In Revelation 4, we see people worshiping God because of who he is. You are the creator. You are the only one worthy. 
Because of who you are, we worship you. And Revelation 5, and I'll show you this in a minute, they worship him because of what he's done. So who he is and what he's done leads us to worship, to singing praises to his name, to lifting up our hearts. But notice here, worship isn't just about words coming out of our mouth. Worship is reflected in action. So these beings created by God the Father with white and gold crowns, they literally take off their crowns and they kneel down before him and they give him the crown. This is so powerful. How many times have you heard this analogy, you know, man, it's really good that you took out your trash for that old lady across the street who can't, you know, she's a wheelchair, she can't move. Man, you're going to get another jewel in your crown in heaven. Maybe. And then you're going to give it back. The whole point is there is nothing on this earth, in the earth, ever been created worthy of him. Nothing. So even the things he gives to you are worthy for him alone. You think about the series we just came out of and all the things we worship on this earth. We worship pleasure and money and success and power and sex and drugs and all these stupid things that we bow down to. And in heaven, and when we get before the throne, we're going to look at him seated on the throne and all his beauty and all his might and all his peace and all his love. And what we're going to say is, man, everything else, I was willing to trade that for him? What in the world was I thinking? Just take it out. You're going to have it, God. And what John is trying to get the churches and trying to get us to do is to look at heaven for just one minute, just one minute, and ask ourselves this probing, hard question, what is worth trading God for? Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he were to gain the entire world, king of everything, all the power, might, and money, pleasure you could think of, but he loses his soul. And I would just say that part of what John is trying to lead us to is to the end of ourselves. The end of our striving, the end of our worship of other things, and lead us to our knees before God and say, God, I'm so sorry that I was clinging to this instead of to you. Why would we do that? Chapter 5 deals with that. Verse 1. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. God is the one sitting on the throne. He's got a scroll in his right hand. And there was writing on the inside and on the outside of the scroll. And it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel. One who shouted with a loud raspy voice. Who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Verse 4, then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. I'll just stop for a minute. Why would John be crying? I mean, I'm in heaven. I'm in the presence of God. Well, first of all, they just tried to boil him to death, and it didn't work. So they exiled him to an island where now he's living by himself on the island of Patmos. He's miserable. And all the churches that he has spent his entire life serving are suffering. And he's been told, send them this message. And now he's in heaven in the presence of God, probably terrified and overwhelmed. And God's got something to say to them. 
And the angel says, who can deliver the message? And the answer is no one. None of the angels, none of the elders, no one. John himself, and John is broken. What if I can't get this message? What is it? I need this message from you, God. You know you felt like that at some point, right? A moment where you just kept crying out to God, God, where are you? And I need you. Life is falling apart. It just looks like you've lost control. I don't even know if you care anymore. Are you still paying attention? That's how John feels right now. And then we get to verse, where are we? Five. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. For lack of a better way to describe it, this role represents the will of God. And Jesus now steps up, and he's standing on the stage. And they're like, John, 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 don't work. Don't worry. You've not been wasting your life. You've not been wasting your time. God isn't. He hasn't lost control. Here is the one. And Jesus stands up between the Father and the creation, represented by the angels and the multitudes and John and everybody else who's gathered there. And just like 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, Jesus. Christ our Lord and he's standing there between the two and he's mediating and he takes the scroll from the hand of the Father and all of heaven starts rejoicing and throws a big party but something crazy awesome happens between verse 5 and verse 6 because he looks up there and here's the lion powerful ruler of the lion of the tribe of Judah man you're the one we've been heard about you're the prophesied one the one who rules on David's throne you're the king and all his power Jesus steps up and John is weeping and he takes away his hands and he looks looks up and verse 6 and then i saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered he was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders did you catch that jesus is unbelievably powerful he's a lion he's a king he's a ruler but he's a savior and he's gentle and kind and everybody who's ever read their Old Testament would know immediately, immediately what this was pointing to. The Passover lamb. Ten plagues in Egypt. If you don't remember the story, go back and read it. Book of Exodus, fantastic. And that last plague, anybody who puts the blood of the lamb over the doorway, the angel of death will pass over. And now Jesus says, or John says, I looked up and there was my lamb. Slaughter. I wonder what John saw in that moment. Did he see a real lamb? Is he using a word to just describe it? I don't actually have any idea, but I think he looked up and saw Jesus' nails in the hands and the feet, and maybe even God gave him a glimpse of the bloody Jesus. I have no idea, but he looked up and he said, that's my Savior. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. Again, don't get confused in some of these things. Seven means complete, and we'll get into some of these things a little bit more later. Some we just won't have time for, but just realize this. Remember in John, John, same guy wrote the same gospel. John in John chapter 14, 15, 16, Jesus says, I got to leave you guys. The disciples are like, what do you mean? Where are you going? Why can't we come with you? Don't you love us? And Jesus says, no, you don't understand. It's better for you if I leave. Like, well, how can it be better? You're Jesus. Because if I go, I'm going to send one after me. And he'll be in you. See, if I stay here, it's me with you. But when I go, I'll send the Holy Spirit, and he'll be in you. And he'll teach you, and he'll lead you. This is huge, because when John is writing this, and he wrote that, what he's saying is, the one who directs the Spirit of God is what? 
God. Nobody else can direct the Spirit of God but God. So what's he saying about Jesus? Jesus is God. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a good man. He's not just a great teacher. He wasn't just a good guy. He's on the throne, the only one worthy to open the scroll. The only one. And he is God because he directs the Spirit of God. So he is the authority of God. Verse 7 he stepped forward and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Who are they worshiping? Jesus. Why? Because he's God. Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Ever wonder, like, God just feels like you're not hearing me, like you're not listening, like you're not acting, you're not doing anything. And what John is trying to tell us, remember a group of people suffering intensely. You think they've prayed a lot of prayers, cried a lot of tears? Suffering intensely, and here is bowls filled with incense, and incense is just sweet-smelling aroma that goes up, and the bowls, the bowls are filled, filled with your prayers. Your God hears you in your suffering. He hears you in your pain, and all of them are standing before his presence, before Jesus in heaven. So don't just think, well, God's in control. I don't have to ask. No, you keep asking. And don't just think, well, God's in control, so it doesn't matter. Oh, no, it matters. And you go before him, and you keep asking because there's a bowl in heaven, and they're all represented there. You keep asking, you keep asking, and you keep asking, God, intercede, help me, equip me, empower me, move, change, convict, help me to repent, help them to repent. God, move in me, do something. And as you lift up those prayers, they gather in heaven before his throne room and he hears every single one. And I'm running out of time and I'm running out of voice. Let's just take a look real quick. Verse 9. And they sang a new song with these words, You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation for. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on the We'll talk about this more in January when we get to heaven and what is heaven and what is the millennial kingdom. And I'm, God, to be honest, I'm still wrestling with it. But here's what I know with absolute certainty. God saved you. Jesus saved you from the wrath of God, but he saved you for the ministry of God. You know, without purpose, you will live for something else because God created you for a purpose. So if you don't live your life for God, you'll live it for something else, your job, your money, your pleasure, your vacations, whatever it is. But if you can find a purpose, that thing that makes you come alive, that thing that God has given you, look, he, did, he just says right here, he caused you to become a kingdom of priests. Well, who are the priests? It's not just the Catholic church people who get paid. The kingdom of priests is every saint. This is why Peter writes in his book that we are a priesthood of saints. We, all of us, not the apostles, not just the guys who get paid. We are a priest of the saints. Well, what's a priest? Go back to the Old Testament. The priest is the one tribe out of the 12 that serves God day and night. It is their job to represent the people to God. So they work for God. They serve God. They work the temple for God. They love God. They minister to people in need. They help other people. That is what it means to become a Christian. 
God didn't just save you for you. He saved you for a purpose, for a meaning. And this was always his goal. If you were to go back to Exodus chapter 19, and I'll just jump down to uh, verse, verse 4. God says this, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be, on, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on the earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. The whole point in this text is simply this, that God has always told us he was going to do this, and then he did it, and now you're it. He's prophesied about you for thousands of years. You are special. You have a purpose in his grand plan. You have a purpose. Have you found your place in his plan? Are you serving others with your lives? Have you connected here at this church to a group of people who are going to love you and serve with you called a life group? Have you found a ministry to serve in, kids ministry or life groups or community? I don't care, worship team. Because if you're just sitting on the sidelines watching everybody else be a priesthood, you might just not be connected to God the Father. He served you, saved you for a purpose. And find your purpose to work struggle and be miserable. Jump down with me to Revelation chapter 5, verse 11, as we close up here. And then I looked again. And I heard the voices of thousands and millions. The whole point of this is it's, it's, it's just a, it's such a big number of angels around the throne of the living beings and of the elders. Everybody now is gathered together and they sang in a mighty chorus. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And they sang, blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the lamb. And I'll just close with this, friends. Who are you bowing your heart to? What are you bowing your heart to? Because the reality is in this life, you can only bow down to God or something else. He will not share that place with another. That's why Jesus said, as we talked about in our last series, you cannot love both God and money. You will either love one and hate the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You're going to have to pick. It's either me or it. And you can apply that same principle to all those other things in your life. Is God first in your life? First in your life. And if he's not, then do today what needs to be done to make it happen. Because Jesus says in Matthew 25, on that last day, people will be separated in two groups, the sheep and the goats. And to the one group, he's going to say, well done, well done. When you saw people who were hungry, you fed them. When you saw people who were thirsty, you gave them something to drink. When you saw people who needed a place to stay and take care of them, you did it. Good job. You represented me well, and now come into your master's kingdom. But to the other group, he's going to look at them and say, you wicked, lazy people. No way from me. And we always think we have more time, right? I'm not going to die for another 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. I got time to get it right. How do you know? You think all those people in Oregon when the gunman showed up with his gun were planning that day to be the last day? 
You think when people have car accidents and heart attacks, that that was on their calendar for the day? You don't know. And besides that, if you love him, you'll do it anyway. What do you need to do in your life that just like all of heaven, you realize the only one worthy is God and you fall on your face and you lift up your, your, your hands and you lift up your hearts and you say, God, to you alone be the glory and the honor and the power and the might forever and ever. Amen. Oh God, right now, we ascribe our worship to you. You alone are worthy. So God, I pray that you would stir in us this desire for you. Help us to get rid of everything that distracts us from you and to draw into your presence. May we see your might and majesty and the lightning and the thunder, but may we see your compassion and your kindness in the Lamb. And may we love you more today than yesterday. In Jesus' name. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to sing. If you need to kneel down, you can use the front of the stage. You can use your chair. If you need to bow down, take the aisle. I don't care. Do whatever you got to do. If you need to make your, a decision for Jesus Christ, be united with him, become white, pure with him, you need to be baptized, go over here to my left and your right. Just talk to our staff. Let's sing.